Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. This episode is brought to you in part by Dice Bart. Dice Bard is an online shop with a great selection of dice and sales that rotate every 24 hours. So if you ever have your sights set on a specific set but not a lot of cash, it won't be long till it goes on sale. Running for new players and want to get them quickly acquainted with the different dice they'll need? The Complete Adventures Dice Kit has 29 color-coded dice that are easy to distinguish while reaching hastily across the table so they can roll damage for their fireball spell. Visit DiceBard.com and use the code DMVAN at checkout to get free expedited shipping and let them know that we sent you. DiceBard has everything you need to play Dungeons & Dragons, as long as all you need is dice. This episode is also brought to you in part by Libris Arcana, Canada's premier dice subscription service. Every month you can get a new complete set from D4s to D20s delivered straight to your door. Dice themes are new each month and can be anything your mind can imagine and more. Visit LibrisArcana.com to get a subscription for just $7.97 Canadian each month. Use the promo code DMVAN to let them know we sent you. Be prepared to open up new worlds of adventure with Libris Arcana. Welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're talking about skills. Today we have with us Sean Halloran. How's it going, Sean? Hi, very well. Thanks for having me again. Hey, no problem. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. So, skills. D&D. Part of the, like, the core part of D&D that uh, we've kind of been wanting to talk about for a little while, but it's a little... It's a pretty broad topic in some ways. And I think for some people it's less interesting than stuff like world building or like a lot of the flavor stuff. Or it's less, or it's and it's less challenging than like you know dealing with problem players and stuff like that. Yeah, so let's let's dive in. Um, I think one of the things that I do see most often online is people talking about how they handle critical successes and critical failures on skills. Even though in fifth edition you're not really supposed to have them, uh, like a a twenty is just supposed to succeed. But some people, and I see this a lot, people are talk about critical success is supposed to be something a little bit more than just you succeed. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one because I feel like a lot of it has to do with, you know, setting expectations for your players and, and being consistent about it. Like, um, like you said, in fifth edition, it's not necessarily an automatic success. If you roll a 20, like let's let's say, you know, it's a DC of 25. I roll a 20 and my modifier is a two. And I, then my roll is a 22 and I haven't hit the DC. So in my games, I typically don't use critical successes and failures on skill checks because I like to sometimes set DCs higher than 20, um, where the only way to hit that would be to roll really, really high, either like a 19 or a 20 plus have a good a good modifier. Yeah, well, you're kind of rewarding players that are trained in that skill as opposed to somebody who rolls on trained and just happens to roll a 20. Exactly. And, and yeah. especially if you have a you know character that has proficiency in that or like a rogue that gets double proficiency or something like that, you could start approaching those higher, uh, higher DCs. But that being said, I do see uh, that, uh, that critical successes and failures on skill checks can be a lot of fun. Depending on the circumstances, oh, yeah. um, you can have some interesting things happen. I think it depends on what kind of game, like in your session zero, what kind of game everybody decides they want to play. Like, if they want to play the high fantasy adventure where, you know, sometimes you just get real lucky and things happen, like, I could see that be the kind of game where, yeah, you have critical successes, maybe not critical fails, but if people want to play, 
closer to the rules or a more realistic game than, yeah, your barbarian who hasn't put any points, skill points, or doesn't have any skill points in, um, like, sleight of hands, they're not going to be able to pickpocket somebody. Like, it's going to be the rogue's job to go and pick locks and pickpocket people. It's the barbarian's job to, you know, intimidate people because he's got that plus seven. <laughs> yeah, it does definitely sort of sort the characters into into different categories in terms of what they can do based on their, their, their skills. So I think, it, yeah, it definitely rewards players that maybe focus in a certain area, have... Uh, um, you know, one ability score that's particularly high compared to the others. Um, they, they can really exceed in, in certain skills that their the rest of their party has, like, no chance of, of coming close to. I think it, it also depends on the skill, right? Like, if somebody rolls a 20 in perception and they're not trained, probably still give it to them. But if somebody is, like, you know, hist- I think especially with the knowledges, mm. it kind of, I know as a player, I get frustrated when I'm, like, the only one trained in history, and I roll, like, a 5 plus 5 and get 10, don't really learn anything. <laughs> then someone who's untrained is like, oh, I roll a 20, I have 21, and then it's like, but, you're like, your character has never sat down to read a book. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that in those situations where, like, especially if the DC is, like, 20 or lower and somebody manages to roll 20. Oh, yeah, that's, the, that's like, different. But, yeah, like, if it's, if it's a, tw- like, if you set the DC at 25 because it's meant to be some, like, really niche knowledge that you would have had to spend time in a university to learn and somebody rolls a 20 yeah like it it's when it comes to the knowledge ones and like wisdom stuffs i think it's so context-based that as a dm you kind of like knowing what the context is of what this role is about that's kind of where setting the dc comes in and being able to say like yeah like for a history check knowing that or a religion check, you would have had to have spent a lot of time in a specialized institution to even have a chance of knowing even a small thing about this, whatever this topic is, versus like, oh yeah, it's just real old. And like, maybe your character just saw a pamphlet because some kid was writing a school, you know, a school thing about it, <laughs> you know? Um, I think in those ones, it's definitely about the context and using that to inform the DC. Yeah. To- and those circumstances, especially knowledge checks, are uh, a spot where I really like to give out advantage for those circumstances. Like, as an example, we are, uh, in my game right now, we're on a tropical island that happens to be the home of two of the characters in the party. Um, and so we've had a couple circumstances where, for example, they need to make a nature check to make sure this certain plant that they've found is not poisonous or something like that. Um, for those characters that were born there, even though they might, you know, they're... they're um, let's say their nature checks or something like that, and it might not be super, super high because they're familiar with the area. I give them advantage on the roll, which I think mathematically equates to like a plus three or a, or a plus four on the roll. So I like to use that in circumstances where, um, you, yeah, like you have something where your character is maybe a, a, a historian um, and you maybe have a higher history modifier than everyone else in the party, but uh, it kind of shields you a little bit from those really nasty like oh i rolled a four on my history or something like that and somebody else the the party idiot rolled in a 19 or something like that so adding that advantage i think gives it kind of levels it out a little a little bit yeah so that is where character backstory and 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 character development becomes really interesting because if you have some areas where you know those that character is particularly knowledgeable in their backstory even if it's not necessarily reflected a hundred percent in their statistics Mm -hmm. i like to give advantage for that because it, it, it allows the characters to feel a little more specialized in certain circumstances, especially yeah. knowledge checks. Yeah, like their backgrounds and the way they've built their character actually matters. I, I think similar to that, a way to kind of avoid the problem of like, you know, the party, 
idiot or whatever not knowing something is like for really specific or obscure knowledge checks you ask people specifically who are trained in it for the role and you know still give them advantage if it's like their area of expertise like you know if the cleric of Bahamut has to roll a religion check to know that Bahamut sometimes travels around as an old man with seven canaries, like the he, lay person he's probably, probably going to have advantage know. on that yeah. roll too. Um, I like that a lot. Um, similar, like kind of in the same vein, though. What about uh, critical fails? Do you guys do that with skill checks? I don't, because I don't like the idea that um, with skills, like I can understand in combat, like. I, just, I also don't use critical fails in combat, but I can see the reasoning in, in, in combat that, like, it's a tense situation. You're trying to move, like, quickly and accurately, and you've just fumbled. Like, you've tripped over a rock, or your glove has slipped, and your sword just didn't go where it was supposed to, and maybe you dropped it or stabbed your friend or whatever. But with skills, usually, like, most of the time... Like, even in tenser situations, like, you're trying to pick a lock to get through a door because guards are coming, then a critical fail to me is just the same as a fail. Like, you just fail to pick the lock and the guards come closer. Like, maybe it might be, like, you let out a curse, like, or the lock, like, your pick snaps and make this really sharp noise or something. But most of the time, like, I'd say, like, nine out of ten times... Critical fails on skill checks just feel weird to me. That like I don't they don't make much sense in the ter- in the sense of like, I mean if you fail on like a, on an intelligence or a wisdom check like history, yeah. like oh you just like if you're real bad like if the DC is fifteen and you get like a two or a three, or or even a critical fail, it's like yeah you might remember the wrong thing, but I don't like I guess with skill checks it's just kind of nonsensical to me with critical fails like yeah if you roll that far beneath the dc you might for an intelligence check get the wrong information or with intimidation like the other person just thinks you're silly and now you can't intimidate them anymore um but a critical fail in these situations just i don't know it doesn't make much sense to me yeah well and i feel like those failure circumstances already are almost like a critical fail right like yeah you fail so badly that something that happens. The opposite of what you wanted. Yeah. And not just you didn't get the knowledge, it's you got the wrong knowledge, yeah. or they don't they're not intimidated, they're less intimidated. Yeah. Um I'm more I'm also more interested in just if you treat one as an autofail, because and definitely correct me on this if I'm wrong, because it's been a while since I've read the section, but I think rolling a one on a skill as far as like the the rules in the book say, I don't think that's an automatic fail. No, it's not. Yeah. So well, it, because you you're always adding a modifier, right? So a one might be a ten if you yeah. have a really high modifier and you're proficient, or you're again you're a rogue who has double proficiency or something like that. Like a one, if you have a great modifier, is not necessarily a, a terrible rule. Yeah. Which is, I mean, that's kind of if you're designing your character in that way. If you have a really high like stealth modifier, it means that even on your worst day, you're still pretty damn sneaky. Right, so I think it's important with uh, when you're talking about critical successes and failures. I feel like the reason that a lot of people like critical successes and failures is because sometimes it's it can be difficult when you're asking for skill checks to be thinking about the consequences of both success and failure. And this is something that I've had to learn a lot as a DM uh, over time is that there should be on every role, whether it's a critical success or failure, there should be something that happens if they succeed and something that happens if they fail, right? Like I try not to ask for skill checks when it's a circumstance where if they would fail, nothing 
happens. Yeah, and I think there's a larger conversation there around, like, don't ask your players to roll if there's no consequences. Exactly. Like, if the consequence of them not rolling above the DC is nothing, then what's the point? Like, like that's what I do sometimes in, in my game, because it's a homebrew world. Um, if there's a piece of knowledge that a character should just know, then I'll just tell the player that like, hey, like one of them is a is a a, a basically came from like a pirate clan, um, and whenever there's stuff that has to do with like ships or the sea or cultures that he would know more about because he probably interacted with them, like there's a dragonborn society that tends to be like the you know the police of the sea so when he sees dragonborn ships i'm able to tell him like oh yeah like here's some a bunch of information that you can relate to the rest of the party um so and when it comes to like the situation of yeah you're picking a lock like if there aren't guards patrolling who are about to find you or something like if you don't succeed and there's a time crunch, like you need to get through this door or something. And the alternative is, oh, you failed to pick the lock. Now we have to bust it down and like really draw attention versus you're just in a back alley. Nobody really cares if they see you. Then, yeah, you're just going to pick the lock. Yeah. Well, and then there's a rule for that, which is take 10. Right. So if you if you are not under a time crunch, you have a lot of time to work this out. There's not somebody who's going to track, you know, find you or something like that. You just take a 10. On the roll. Is that actually in the fifth edition rules? That's a good question. I'm not actually. I've always used it like that. Like if you if you have an unlimited time, like if you I remember, to search for something. Or... I remember like I played third like three point five once, and I remember taking twenty. Where it's basically just like if you've got enough time, it's just you get a twenty on your skill check. Right. Yeah. And I suppose it's something that it depends on the check as well. Like <clears throat> there might be a check that like no matter if you don't know how to do this or if you don't have the skills, no no amount of time is gonna allow you to to succeed. Yeah. But I can see if certain certain things where especially like knowledge checks, like if you're in a library looking through books or something like that, like if, with enough time you're gonna find that information if there's not a time crunch. But that I think is uh comes back to how you design your adventure. I try to leave as little of those circumstances as possible i always try to be pushing the party forward so that there are they don't have a lot of opportunities to go well let's just take our time and and you know sort of go slowly about this i like to have consequences if they don't if they don't act quickly yeah and i think even like that situation of them being in a library like i would probably phrase it as like hey you've got like you guys have got like just a little bit of downtime you've got three or four days and there's like I would try to pile on other things that need to get done so that if a character wants to spend four days in the library researching this dark ancient wizard because he's become a lich and they need to know more about him, then it's like, well, if you spend all four days, you don't get to do some of this other stuff that needs to get done. Yeah. And But if they spend all four days in the library just pouring through books, they might find something really important. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, yeah, like in that case, I wouldn't. that's not really a skill check. It's just... How are you going to use your time because you've only got so much? I'm glad you brought up taking 10 and also taking 20 because I, I believe taking 20 was in 4th ed. I know I used it once or twice, mm-hmm. but I, um, I'm i running Dragon Heist, which has a lot of like kind of downtime built into it. And I, I had forgotten about taking 10, admittedly. And that's, I think, a really good way to be like, um, to allow your players to narrate what they're doing if they're doing that. So if they're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take twenty. We're gonna take a whole week. We're gonna ask everybody we can in the city about this thing. And you're like, okay, yeah. Well, who do you ask? 
what happens and like or like who do you go and talk to how do you where do you find this information where do you think you're gonna get it um because it uh, like i like taking 20 a lot but it's also kind of boring if it's like i take 20 okay you succeed <laughs> after two days like you can add story in there and flesh it out and really talk about what that looks like yeah i try to give the party a reason or a or a uh an alternate route well you can take 20 you can take the passive route and and take your time and and whatever but here's another option if you want to be more aggressive about it and 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 look down you know hunt down this information um so that they 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 have a choice it's not um it's not that oh this is the only way the only way to get this information is to sit around for three days and 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 figure it out um i like to try to give the party multiple ways to gain that 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 same information you know one way might be to take 20 and and or take 10 and find it in a book spend a couple of days in a library but hey if you hit the streets and start asking questions and finding the right people you might be able to get that information a little bit faster it might be harder you might have it might, it might be a higher dc or you may have to do a little bit of social engineering or, or something like that yeah. um but i always like to give them that uh, that option well and like uh Oh, God, there's two Sean H's. Like, Sean Hagen was saying, um, like, you can introduce consequences, right? Like, you take 20, you find out the thing, but yeah, maybe the enemy is, has made a move. Maybe you find this out as soon as, like, a bomb goes off in the next building or, you yeah. know, whatever. Like, you can add drama to that yeah. instead of making it just kind of just a plain pass. You pass the skill check. And I think, like, one of the things that's been just going over my head while, while we've been talking about this is... It feels like some of this is a consequence of the fact that bare bones D and D has you set a DC and then you roll and if your roll plus your modifiers equal to or greater you do the thing if it's not you fail and I think a lot of what I see about like critical success critical fail is trying to add a little bit more narrative to that whereas like you know because like it's something that I've introduced because I've I've got it from other systems where yeah the DC is fifteen. But if you get if you roll a twenty five, then you did really well. But if you get a five or lower, then you know you get the wrong information rather than just no information. Because like um, in the Star Wars, in the Fantasy Flight Star Wars RPG, like um, Edge of the Empire, uh, Age of Rebellion, and Force and Destiny, they've got special dice, and those dice help. You, like you can succeed, and something still bad or something really bad happens based on the dice that you're rolling and how well you roll them. And I like the idea of even if you succeed, something bad happens, and I think it's just a like a consequence of D and D just having a DC and a dice roll that a single dice roll that there's you as DMs we kind of have to invent ways for the roll to be more interesting, and also like you were saying with the taking twenty, like it's something that I think some DMs like I have to keep reminding myself to like make it more narrative because yeah if you fall into the rut of your players just saying like oh yeah I'm just gonna take twenty and just accomplish this thing and you're just like yeah okay you fall into this rut of people just rolling skills and not narrating what they're doing and it's just becoming kind of a rote game of you putting a challenge and them just saying, cool, I roll. Instead of it becoming a story of like, oh, well, guards are coming and you guys have to decide what you're doing and like turning into this like intense experience rather than just the door's locked, cool, I roll. You know, this, uh, I think this brings us really neatly into kind of another thing we wanted to talk about, which is skill challenges. Because if you want to do something over a longer period of time, instead of take, just taking 20, you could make it a skill challenge that maybe takes the players a couple of weeks or a couple of days. Um, and you played 4th edition, right? Yeah, quite a bit. 
Um, and like that was a big part of fourth ed. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like it's mentioned in the fifth ed handbook, but it's not really covered. Do you want to go over kind of because I never ran in fourth ed? Mm-hmm. Do you want to go over the basics of how they worked? Yeah, it was actually a lot simpler than it sounds. Uh, basically, this is something that can be used. The skill challenge is something that can be used in any really any non combat encounter non when you're not literally physically fighting with something else so you can use it for a lot of different circumstances you can use it in social situations let's say you're trying to intimidate or bargain with somebody to get some information you can use it in you even if it's not combat you can use it it's great for action sequences chase scenes for example you're chasing someone through a town or um you're um you know hunting someone or, or something like that um it's uh, the the mechanic is really 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 simple in fourth edition. It's basically you you choose uh, a number of uh, successes. It, it almost kind of works like death saving throws, where you have to hit a certain number of successes before you hit a certain number of failures in order to succeed in the skill challenge. So. Um, uh, Using that chase scene as an example, maybe your uh, your first check is oh a perception check to see which way they went, and then it's oh an ath- it's an athletics check to chase them down. It's an acrobatics check to jump over the apple cart that they just overturned to try to slow you down. And you basically just keep track of those successes and failures. And if you hit a target number of successes before you hit the target number of failures, then your party succeeds in the skill challenge, and there's obviously an outcome for that. And if they fail. If they hit the failure number first, then they fail, and there are consequences for that. So it's a really simple, uh, from a mechanical perspective, it's just successes and failures, and you're just counting them up. Within that, you have a ton of freedom on how exactly you want to use that. Um, It does usually work best when there is, obviously, consequences or, like, you know, I, uh, I, I would be... It would be interesting to do it over lo- like a longer period of time, like you said, something that might take a week or something like that. I, that was not typically how I ran skill challenges, but I like that idea, um, especially if you have if you know that you have a, a prolonged period of downtime. You could absolutely um, use that as a skill challenge. Okay, you guys have got a week in town. You know what are you going to try to do? Um, and have them roll checks and, and 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 keep that. And then after at the end of the week, you know you have a, an outcome from your skill challenge. So. Because what pops into my head when I heard skill challenge was um, from Critical Role, Matt Mercer's uh, resurrection skill challenge. Um, Because the way that he does it is basically like he doesn't want resurrection to just be a, oh, I cast a spell, cool, they're back. Like it's meant to be a like you have to kind of convince your dead friend to come back from wherever they've gone. And usually what he does is like everybody has to make um, uh, some kind of a persuasion check or... Um, like a wisdom check they have to like speak to their friend or do something and then they have to make a skill like they can usually it's like oh persuasion or just like a you know straight dc check um and what he's doing on his end is he's got a target dc and then like there's a dc like if somebody says oh i'm gonna persuade them and like blah 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 and like he'll be like okay roll and he'll set a dc for that roll if they succeed it lowers this like master DC by a little bit. If they fail, he raises it by a little bit. And basically that kind of master DC is what he's going to roll against once like three or four people have made this check to see if like has the spell actually succeeded. And I've kind of taken that and modified that for, for skill challenges where like if, if people need to... If for, I like that for skill challenges because like people can then... There are some situations like a chase, for example, where... Yeah, you kind of have to lay it out beforehand where, like, yeah, there's going to be, like, a perception check to see which way they've gone. And then, you know, like, 
athletics to chase them down or jump over carts because you're like you're kind of just building a racetrack that they're trying to keep up with this person until the end but for other skill challenges where it's like oh we've got to do a thing i'm totally blanking on what it could be but i know that i've done this before where they the the players can choose what skill they want to apply they just have to tell me how they use it because they have to justify like okay you're trying to like interrogate somebody why are you using history? I know you've got a plus seven, but you have to really justify why you're using history. Like, and if there's like, maybe it's like, oh, my character like once read a book on, you know, like ancient torture methods. So I'm just going to talk about them and I'm just going to explain them in detail of like, hey, here's all these things we could do to you. And if they explain it really well, then I'll like, I'll lower the DC for what they're trying to do because they've convinced me that their character is like properly using the skill. Whereas if they just say like, Oh, I just want to use history because I've got a plus seven. It's like, cool, DC's 25, roll ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that uh, comes to a really important point about skill challenges that, like, because most DMs will come at them with specific skills in mind, but if your players are able to justify other ones, you should absolutely give it to them. It's the, the, whole, uh, the whole kind of theory or um, approach of don't say no, ask them how. Yeah. Right, I think this is one of those circumstances where uh, this is something that new players... Uh, tend to do a lot just because they're still sort of learning the mechanics is where they ask for a role. Um, hey, can I roll history on this? I try to discourage that in my games. I try to I try to ask my players to tell me what they're trying to do in, in English, in plain English. Don't talk about your roles. Don't talk about your modifiers. Say, hey, uh, we're trying to interrogate this guy. You know, my character knows a lot about torture. You know, is that of any use? And as the DM, I can then ask for a history check or, a, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so I think if you get your players to, to start thinking about skill challenges in that way um, and less... Um, in a pure mathematical or a, or a statistical perspective, I think that um, gives you more opportunity for using uh, different skills or using underused skills. Um, and if you have a creative party, then it can lead to some really interesting uh, checks that you wouldn't normally, uh, you know, have in that in that circumstance. Yeah, yeah I think the one of the the signs of your game just becoming a boring just everybody's just sitting around a table rolling is people either asking to roll a specific skill or or just saying oh cool i'm just going to roll perception like without telling you what they're trying to do because at its core like dnd is supposed to be narrative storytelling so if people are just going straight to rolling and not trying to narrate what they're doing cuz i think one of the things that I really try to instill in the people that I play with is that like it's the DM's job to tell you what and when to roll. It's your job to tell you tell them what your character is doing so they can choose the appropriate DC and skill check. Um, like if you make the case, it's your job to like if you really want to roll history for something or you really want to roll persuasion or athletics, then it's your job to narrate what your character is doing in a way that makes it so that yeah, okay. Athletics is the skill that you should be rolling right now. Roll ahead, and the, D the DM sets a DC and either tells you or keeps it to themselves. Mm -hmm. um, because, uh, yeah, I really believe that we're you know we're telling a story together. And if you're just sitting there going, "Oh, I'm just going to jump over the, over the wall. I'm going to roll athletics," it's like, no, that like narrate more what you're doing because yeah. it makes the game more fun. It draws people into what's happening. Yeah. I think it can be fine sometimes if, if it's, you know, if it is a simple thing like jumping over the wall and they're just like, yeah, I jump over the roll, wall, I roll athletics, fine. But, it, like, I think the problem is just where I roll athletics. 
Yeah, I roll acrobatics. Yeah, yeah, they they need to be they need to be telling you what they're doing. Well, and that kind of preempts the DM. If we go back to talking about consequences on rolls, if the players are prompting me for for specific roles, well, I haven't had time, or I haven't, I don't have the ability as a DM to come up with, you know, a, a meaningful consequence for that role if you're just asking for it. Yeah. Um, you know, and then it, then you put me in an interesting position because it's like, okay, well, I want to roll athletics to jump over the wall. Okay, well, you rolled bad, so roll again. Like you get into that sort of interesting um, again, where it's like a take ten, or you have to you have to try to make sure that it's that again that there's consequences, which is way harder to do when people are throwing specific roles at you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's like because the the problem that always ends up being like with the athletics jump over the wall thing. It's like okay, you you fail. Okay, well, what, what's what's the consequence of fail? You break an ankle. Okay, well now your character can't move properly. You have a huge disadvantage in combat. Like, and all these stuff, for, like, what was a small role to try and get over a wall, yeah. but, like, on the other hand, if you don't do something like that, what's the consequence, yeah. and, like, how does it And that's work? a great circumstance where I would just not ask someone, especially if they're, uh, you know, if they're a monk or something like that, yeah. like, you jump over the wall, like, let's move on to, to more interesting things with, with more interesting consequences. Yeah, like, yeah, it, I think, like, to me, like, I'm thinking about, like, well, why would you be jumping over a wall, and it's like... Well, if you're trying to sneak into the governor's manor, then you're not rolling athletics. You're going to roll sneak because you're trying to do this quietly, yeah. you know. Or if you're trying to, um, you know, jump over a wall quickly because you need to get to your friend who's been captured, that's going to be a different role. And, like, it's, I think it comes back to the, like, context of, like, if there's time pressure, if there's a, like, you need to figure out what the consequence of failure is. Before you even let them roll, because if there's no consequence, then it's like, yeah, cool, you jump over the wall, let's keep going. I'd like to give an interesting example of using athletics to get over the wall. My character will roll athletics to get help get the rest of the party over the wall and then follow. And then a failure can be really interesting. Yeah, you get you get the wizard and the warlock over, but now you and the rogue are stuck on the other side because you, you botched the attempt partway through, you dropped the rogue, and now you guys are separated. Yeah. That could be really narrat- narratively interesting. Um, I mean, you're talking about splitting the party, though, which is a different kind of headache. <laughs> That's a whole different uh, circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like splitting the party is one of those things that a lot of people say you never should do, but is maybe not as bad as a lot of people believe. Because at this point, a lot of people are just, like, are absorbing it from the the ether of the internet and, like, the history of it. And, like... I've there had plenty are, of circumstances where the party was split and it ended up being super interesting. So yeah. it, it totally depends on it, the context. It's just a bit more work for the yeah. DM, right? Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a different conversation about yeah. metagaming. But back to skills. Yeah, uh, no, just one quick thing about skill challenges. And uh, correct me if I'm misremembering this. This is a weird episode because I keep pointing at Sean Halloran when he makes a good <laughs> point, and I usually don't do that. And the audience can't see it. Um, uh, was it like the standard kind of example one was three successes is a is a pass and two failures is a overall fail? Yeah, you generally needed more successes than failures in yeah. order to pass the skill check um so uh, yeah i think that i think the standard was was three and two yeah um but i they definitely encourage you in fourth edition to to have so make make it you know five and three or seven and five or something like that there's no real hard uh rule that you're supposed to do that it depends on the challenge and depends on the complexity of the challenge yeah and it's, it's important to remember for fifth ed because in Fourth ed, you would have huge bonuses to skills. Yeah, the, the scaling was was just 
bonkers in 4th yeah. edition. So if you're going to use it in 5th ed, you're going to have to tinker with it a little bit. But like, still, I feel like the 3 passes and 2 failures is pretty... Like, if people are using skills they're trained in and are like firing on all cylinders and justifying them and stuff like that, I feel like that's pretty easily doable as long as the DC's not absolutely insane. Yeah, and ideally your party is being creative enough with their uses of their skills that... You know they have a pretty good shot at hitting three successes before before three failures. You know they're 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 rolling in skills that they're proficient in or that kind of thing. So um, yeah, it's a great way to reward players for using their skills yeah. well. Um, just quickly on skill challenges before maybe we move on. One one thing I always enjoyed at the table is like making sure everyone in the party is doing a thing, whether you're going in an initiative order or just going around the table. So you don't just have the one character being like, well, I'm really good at, th at athletics. I'm just going to roll it three times and we're going to go with that. Or uh, alternatively doing the, the rule where you can't repeat the check. Yeah, I like, and I think that's one of the reasons why I like getting players to tell me which skill they want to use and narrate why, because it lets characters who you know might not be good at this thing or might not have a chance to to really shine because the only thing they've got a plus nine in is history it lets them like come forward and say like oh i know about this castle i've read about it i spent you know my dissertation was on this area and being able to come forward and like really shine at a moment when the party really needs them to in a skill that maybe they've never had a chance to use before and they've been sitting there looking at that plus nine going why did i do this yeah. and i think that's that's part of the dm's job as well is to know what skills your your characters are strong in ideally you've worked with them to develop their backstory and to develop you know figure out reasons hey why does your character have a plus nine in history there's got to be a reason right they have to have studied it or they have to have been taught it growing up or something like that so yeah ideally as a dm you you sort of have a rough idea of who's good at what and then you can ask for roles based on on that which reminds me i need to look at my player's character sheets on my next session so i can write <laughs> down what skills they're actually proficient in yeah so i i know it at the time it's <laughs> useful yeah i think Part of designing a good skill challenge, I think, is designing it in a way that <clears throat> all of your players have a chance to shine. So that, you know, I mean, there's going to be some skill challenges where, like, yeah, if you're chasing somebody down, it's like, yeah, send your fastest person and they just have to make a bunch of rolls. And I think that's an argument for making it shorter, like only three or four checks. Whereas if it's something that you want to involve the whole party and make it something that, you know, yeah, somehow history and acrobatics and wisdom and a whole bunch of different things can interact to help them solve this thing yeah in fourth edition they really encouraged um in when designing skill checks that you that you allow for multiple solutions to the same problem so when you're designing a skill check try to think of okay here's a an, an impediment an obstacle you know, how could this be solved with athletics? How could it be solved with history? How could it be solved with perception? So you kind of leave yourself a couple of, of, of routes that you can go. Um, and even even if you haven't considered all the possibilities, it at least allows you in the in the moment when you're running it to say, okay, this is, I have a couple of different ideas of how this could be resolved. And ideally that goes back to, you know, when you're designing the, the, the skill challenge, you should, you should try to think about what, you know, what your party is going to do. Ideally, you know, your party's, you know, tendencies after you've played a couple games, you kind of, you will usually get an idea of who likes to roll what or who's good at what. So um, that comes back to designing the skill challenge. And if you design a good skill challenge, it should ideally involve every member of your party in some capacity. What's kind of percolating in my head is that you should like, and this maybe just applies to just designing skill checks is like 
design it so that it can be solved with each of the six uh, attributes. Like somebody with strength can do it, somebody with high charisma, somebody with high wisdom. Because like if you're in a chase, like maybe your big bruiser, you know, maybe they don't have good athletics for some reason, or they want to use intimidation. It's like they just they describe them yelling to get the crowd out of their way. Like yeah, let your players be creative in in ways that you didn't think of and like try to design it so that yeah somebody who's really good with has really high intelligence can still help out with this chase somehow mm. and like i think and there wouldn't be a lot of use of this but like for example constitution doesn't really have its own skill anymore but i think if you're you know if one of your players has a good constitution and they're like yeah i like i want to try and like just physically block them like and stand in their way let them use if they can like let them use constitution for it give them the proficiency dice or whatever just to like like make some use of that because uh constitution as far as skill goes can be a bit frustrating because like for a lot of players it's their second best skill or maybe their best skill and then they can't use it in skill challenges yeah i tend to use constitution as the like how like how good are you at surviving these just bad conditions? But it can also be like in, a, in the chase situation, it's like, yeah, you, you managed to catch up to him because you're just, you've, you've got a really good constitution. Like you've been, you've spent time, you know, in the morning, you go for morning runs when everybody else is still asleep. Mm. Yeah. They're, they're starting to lag, but you're just not stopping. You're yeah. terminating, terminating that. Talking about fourth edition and skill challenges, one of the other, I think, really good things about skill challenges or pardon me, about 4th edition that uh, is not really present in 5th present in, in, in edition in the same way is the um, the uh, Fortitude, Reflex, and Will saves, oh, so were, which was really a, a really interesting concept in that you have these three, you have these three different saves that are derived from one, the higher of your two ability scores. Uh, so if you have a higher, um, so for like your Reflex save, I think it was... And, and I might be wrong about this. It's been a long time since I played fourth edition, but it was derived from the higher of like your dexterity or your intelligence, mm-hmm. which yeah. are two very different skills. But it's like okay, you, your reflex save is either you are just fast enough to to get out of the way, or you are intelligent enough to see that something was coming to predict the consequences and and, and get out of the way like that. One thing I really miss from fourth ed is that will is either wisdom or charisma. Yeah. So like. Maybe you're not the smartest character, maybe you're not the wisest, but your sheer force of personality <laughs> could, you know, stop you from falling prey to a command spell or something like that. Yeah. There's a couple other things that I want to get to, so I think we should yeah, yeah, move let's, on. Let's go on. Um, I think we've already kind of covered unusual uses of skills a little bit with, like, you know, using history in weird ways or um, stuff like that. But I think it'd be a good idea to, like, just maybe brainstorm or give examples of times that you've seen skills used in weird and fun interesting ways well and just to tell other dms yeah like like if if there's a justification and it's not like specifically really weird or like doesn't actually make any sense if you think about it for five seconds and someone's like yeah i want to use i don't know I, i can't think of an example right now but like if someone has a good idea and it seems a bit unusual, but it does apply to the skill. Let them try it. Yeah. And that just comes back to rule of cool, right? Like yeah. If it's cool, um, and if they have, a, you know, even a tangential justification for it, roll it. See what happens, right? Like, yeah. uh, be willing to, to let the dice decide to some degree. Yeah. And I think, like, it's it's the whole thing of, like, if your, char- your players have skills, and if they've got a 
you know, plus seven or plus nine in a skill that they have never had a chance to use. And they're sitting there looking at it, like, let them shine with that skill, even if it kind of doesn't make any sense. Like, you know, character with the really high history or really high religion, because I think history and religion are some of the ones that, like, unless you're specifically like, oh, yeah, you're in an old tomb. Like, you know about this because you've got a high history. Like, if they're, you know, talking to somebody or trying to, like, chase somebody down, like, you know, in the chase, like, how do you use history in a chase? Mm-hmm. It's like, you know about, you know, the old sewer systems or this this alley or, like, you know some way through the city that'll get you to where you think they're going even faster. A quick side note on history. I always liked to apply it to also, like, military tactics. Because presumably, a lot of, especially in a, like a kind of fantastical medieval setting, a lot of your history is wars. And like, if you're reading that stuff, you're reading about tactics. And since there's no actual skill for it, I like allowing players to use history to think of a tactic. Like, oh, you know, this, they use this tactic in a similar chase between these and these people in this great boat, like a thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know, roll history to see if you can apply that correctly. Yeah, one, one of the things that I always do, I mentioned this a little bit earlier with my players in like a session zero beforehand, is to, yeah, okay, so you've rolled your ability scores, you've used those to determine your 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 skill modifiers, but I want you to think about them more granularly, like, why do you have a plus five in history? Like, what is that part of your character? And I encourage people to think out of the box, well, your typical thing with history is, oh, well, I studied, I studied history, you know, I read it in a book. That's kind of boring. You know, there's there are more interesting ways that you could get that information. Maybe you lived through a, an important historical event that most people did not live through, and so you have unique insight into yeah. certain circumstances. Or yeah, like if you're an elf or a dwarf, like you were there. Yeah, exactly. So try to think about it. And like, okay, like um, you know, sleight of hand or stealth. Um, you know, why is your character so sneaky? A lot of people are just like, well, they're sneaky. They're quiet. Okay, but like. Uh, you know, how did they become, did they have to sneak around? Were they a prisoner for a long period of time and had to, had to do things, you know, on the down low so they didn't alert the guards? Were they a thief? Were they, you know, there's a, there's gotta be a reason people are, you know, you can be inherently sneaky, but I like to think of skills as things that people have developed over time. That's part of their personality. It's part of their upbringing. Um, so I think asking your characters to think more critically about why they have certain skills leads you to find more unusual uses for them because i find if you give your players that creativity they're going to use it in ways that you that you don't expect so i invite people i invite characters and players to to come up with weird reasons why you have that skill why you're so good at that and it can also help inform their backstory like the thing that occurred to me while you're talking about like why does your character have history what popped into my head was this character, their one of their parents was a history teacher at some local university or something, and so they would, you know, while they were practicing their history lectures, this, you as a kid would listen in, and you know lots of little bits and pieces about a very specific topic, but not super well because you were a kid and you were listening in. But right. And, like, maybe you followed up a little bit as you got older, but, you know, you always start your, you know, whenever you make a history check, like, oh, I remember my dad talking about this, and, like... Well, and that offers... Uh, some of the other things you're thinking about, about skills is, you know, sometimes you 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 have a skill that maybe your character is not super interested in. So, like, going back to the example of, yeah, your parents were a history... your One of your parents was a history teacher. Maybe you f- hate talking about history because your parents were talking about it all the time, but you were just around it as a kid all the time. So, you know, maybe your character is, is 
begrudgingly offers that information like oh yeah that's the thing that my dad was always talking about right you don't always have to be just because you're really good at a skill means that your character is super enthusiastic about that skill or they're super keen to use that skill um that offers interesting opportunities for role play maybe your character is really good at intimidation but they hate the fact that they're so good at intimidation because yeah. of the dark past they're yeah. like they used to be in a gang and they were an enforcer and they really want to leave that part of themselves behind yeah. but they really need to draw on that right now and that's a great opportunity for role play for that character because you're asking them to to go against they're going against their character from a personality or a choices perspective, but they're going with their character from a mechanical perspective. That's a really interesting situation to me. Well, and I think this really allows for some interesting use of the structures of some classes. So maybe you're playing a warlock with a fiend pact. You don't know anything about religion, but you're... Your fiend pact patron is whispering this information to you sometimes, or, or barbar like a barbarian with the the ancestor uh, thing. Like they could have a really good history because yeah, like in your dreams or just like your ancestors sometimes whisper to you or whatever. Or you've got a spirit totem who's you know telling you stuff about like local like spirit based religion. So like if you're doing a religion check about a specific thing, your spirits are going to help you out. Mm. Yeah, that's why I think it's just important to to ask the players because I find I find ninety five percent of the time when you put it to the players, they're going to think of something cooler than you, just because you have enough things to think about as a DM. Because so. you're thinking about NPCs and how this battle is going to go and the plot that's coming ahead, whereas they spend their entire entire time thinking about what is my guy going to do? Yeah, why are they doing? This? And that's uh, like uh, one of the things that I encourage, uh, especially when uh, you're you're rolling characters or your or your or your um, you're, you're deciding, you know, sort of what you want your character to be. Um, if you have a negative modifier in something, like if you have a t character that's really that's really dumb, or like you have an eight intelligence and that gives you your negative modifier on your intelligence checks, I want to know why. I want to know: Did your character drop out of school? Are they just kind of thick? You know, like I want to. There's, there's. Uh, that's why I really like. Uh, I encourage you to lean into your negative skills. Lean into your negative modifiers. Because there's role playing opportunities there, and it's really you get into really fun situations where you're asking. Um, I think it's fun to ask characters to do skill checks that they are you know that they're really bad at, or put them in circumstances um, where where they're up against you know rolling a uh, something with a negative two or something like that. I think those are those times where like when they pull it off it's a moment where everybody's just like yeah yeah that you create great moments by encouraging people to lean into those negative skills where it's like holy shit he did it yeah because like, people <laughs> people don't remember the 10 times before that you failed because of your negative two yeah. they're going to remember for the rest of the campaign that you succeeded at that critical juncture even with your negative two exactly one thing i really like doing as a player when it comes to skills that you're not trained in especially for knowledge is uh, opting not to roll unless you're specifically asked. Because, you know, you get that thing at the, the, the table sometimes where someone's like, oh, I roll history because my character's trained in history. And then everyone else is like, oh, yeah, I do too. And it's like, well, it's like, no, I, I'm playing a character who does not care really or does not know anything. They're not going to roll. They don't, they don't know. And I think it's, as a player, fine and good. I and mean, I think it also builds on the backstory and who your character is if you're just like, yeah, no, I don't roll perception. My character's not looking out. I think that's part of training the, your players when and why to use skills. Because if you've got a bunch of people who, like, I think that's like that's kind of the end point of people just saying, oh, I roll perception, is, you know, once, as soon as somebody either fails or they don't see anything, everybody else is like, 
I'm going to roll perception too. It's like, mm. why are you rolling? Like, yeah. you have to get people used to telling you why they're rolling. Yeah. Because if they want to get in on something, they have to explain why. Yeah. Right. Because if you just let them roll also, like, you know, you ask you know, the person with a really high perception to roll because you've put something in, in this room that they only have only they have a chance of seeing. Mm-hmm. And if everybody rolls perception and fails, they're going to be like, oh, no, there's something in here. It's like, no, I just there was a detail on the wall. That's it. Right. Well, and like it's uh, a totally understandable and natural reflex to be like, oh, I want to roll the thing, too. I mean, it, it's it's primarily what players are doing a lot of time is rolling dice. Right. So I, I get that. It's just one of those things that I've tried to be more conscious of as a player, and I like I encourage other DMs and other players to do too. Is just like, yeah, if you're not good at a skill, and like it's not at a juncture where your DM's like, I need all of you to roll a perception check because you hear a loud noise or whatever. Like, and I, I in fifth edition, I love the mechanic, the help, the help mechanic. Yeah. If you're helping someone, they get an. Uh, I like to use that more than I like to ask for group checks. Yeah, because um, I find when you get into that group check, you know, let's say you're rolling a perception check. Um, you know, they, uh, you, you have to basically set the DC higher in your head when you're asking for five people to roll on perception. It depends what it is that you're, that you're asking them about um, than you would if you were asking an individual. So I like to, I like to say, okay, not only um, are, who, who wants to help on this, but how are you helping? Because that can affect the outcome of the role as well. You know, if somebody's um, looking through, uh, you know, they're trying to find, they're trying to turn over a room to find something that's hidden in this room. But the 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 brutish, you know, barbarian is helping out or something like that, and they fail on their check. Maybe they like break something that they weren't supposed to, or, or something like that. Um, but I, offering advantage on that role, I feel like removes that circumstance where everybody goes, "Oh yeah, me too. Can I also roll?" Um, so I I try to lean into that. A that, little bit. That's uh, like I always forget about the helmet cap. Yeah, um, I I continuously forget about advantage and disadvantage. Yeah. But um, I think this brings us nicely though into like because we were talking about people like players helping each other roll things. Mm. What do you guys think um, about players using skills against each other? Because I know that um, Matt Colville did a video where he kind of talked about it, and he's like, I don't. He doesn't let his players do it a lot of the time. Uh, I. Because it, it does kind of sometimes force a, a character to do something they don't want their character to do, mm-hmm. but in certain c- circumstances, it makes more sense than others, right? I like I the only thing time that I can see it being applicable is if you've got somebody whose character really wants to persuade somebody through whatever means, however they're they're doing it, whether they're be, trying to be persuasive or charming or intimidating or using history to provide. You know, this is why we need to do a thing. But the player is not comfortable trying to give any kind of convincing speech or intimidating speech or historical speech where they just they want to say, like, hey, my character really wants to convince your character. And if both people are okay with it and like I would let them figure out how that works, because and I would also say, like, to the person who's being rolled against, like you are allowed, even if they roll a 30 to just say no, because it's your character and you can't let somebody else dictate what your character does. I really like the idea of the players kind of dictating the circumstances of it between each other, as opposed to the DM doing it. But like, I, I kind of, I like that with the kind of rule. If that's not happening, no, you can't roll to automatically convince somebody if their character would not agree. Just like, you know, bottom line, 
their personality won't bend in that direction. Well, I think that's something that you have to remember for all kinds of skill checks. Even if you're not going against another party member, if somebody just will not do something, then you shouldn't be asking for a role in that circumstance, right? That goes back to what we were talking about earlier about conditions of success and failure. If there is no failure condition, don't ask for the role. Um, And I think that when you're talking about using skills against each other, I think a lot of it depends on your, the, the, the party and, like, as a perfect example, uh, I was playing last night. I'm currently playing a, a campaign with a couple friends. And um, my character and this other character um, have... Uh, my character sort of learned some information about this other character's backstory that is relevant to the story of the campaign. So we had a little sort of social roleplay session between the two of us where my character was trying to... Um, like, he went to grab him and hold him back. He's like, we need to talk and grab him. So we did a grapple checks and things like that. But we both know, you know, me and this other player are both, you know, veteran players. We both know that the point of, uh, of of rolling against each other is not to create some sort of adversarial situation. We're, we're role-playing. So if we're, if we're all in agreement that we're all trying to move forward to, together and me rolling against you is not an antagonistic Move. I'm not. I'm not trying to challenge you on this. I'm just trying to create an interesting roleplay situation. Um, then I think it's okay. I think where you get into issues um, with new players or with with certain types of players, where yeah, they do they do want to try to you know bend other characters to their will or force characters to do something. Just as a DM, uh, it's important to not take away player agency. I think it's important to not let your players take away agency from other players and by allowing skill checks in certain situations or or allowing certain outcomes to come out of skill checks i think you have to be careful with that with with certain parties but if you get your party all on the same page and you're and 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 everybody's working together and and that kind of thing i think it's you can have really some really fun social circumstances and um this is a great area where like selective ignorance comes into play where like me as a player might know something about my character's backstory or sorry another character in the party i might know something about their backstory as a player but my character doesn't know that so trying to get that information through social skill checks and things like that can be a really fun uh can be a really fun experience if everybody's on the same page about it yeah i think this kind of comes to the whole thing of like using like i like the idea of using like if if both the players are on the same page them using a skill check as just a way to direct their role play and not as a like oh well you rolled really high on your charisma check so i'm just my character yeah just tells you the thing as as opposed rather like using checks i like i think as a dm i would almost prefer to tell the players like hey instead of rolling just talk about your skills and how like how your skill compares to their skill and like try to figure out like yeah you've got a plus seven in charisma and they've got a plus two so like yeah maybe your character is going to be pretty charismatic but it like still at the end of the day it's you know player b's choice as to whether you swayed them or not yeah because i think like yeah the the players players being antagonistic and trying to like take agency away from other players is the biggest danger of players using skills against each other because you don't want this to you don't want your game to just turn into a like i'm in control of the party because i've got the highest charisma mm-hmm. um, i have a, a bit of a background in in improv i did improv uh improv theater in high school and, and things like that and it's why i encourage anyone who's interested in in, in role play from a gaming perspective to like take an improv class because the first thing you learn in improv is that it's not 
when you're on stage with somebody or when you're when you're in a scene with somebody, you're supporting each other. You're you're acting in a way that is beneficial to the other. You always have that other person's back. Uh, and I think if you have that mentality when you're going into a role play, even if it's an antagonistic situation, like in that situation I was talking about last night, my character was very upset about something that he learned about this other character. He thought maybe he was turned was going to turn out to be evil or something like that. So he confronted him, and it was a tense situation. But that player knows that my character is not going to like stab his character. We know that we're on the same side, um, and that and so he. When we started rolling these, you know, uh, social checks and things like that, he knows that I'm not going to use that information against him or, or use it to turn it into an antagonistic situation. Um, he's helping my character develop by, you know, give, uh, revealing certain information or, or allowing me to intimidate or interrogate his character, knowing that the outcome is not going to be bad for his character. We're still going to be in the same party. We're still going to be working together. But you can, if you, if you have that feeling that everyone's on the same side, we're all supporting each other, we're all growing our characters together, from a player perspective, then I think you can have a lot of fun with, with rolling against each other. If you all know that the outcome is going to be good for everybody. And if you're willing to, to accept, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a failure against another party member right. that develops interesting party dynamics. If your player intimidated another player, sometimes maybe that that character, or sorry, if your character intimidated another character in the party, maybe that character is gonna be less um, uh, or more reluctant to speak up against your character later on. Yeah. So I think you can develop social dynamics within the party as long as you have that trust. I think I think that's the biggest thing is that. The players have to trust each other, and you have to trust your players that this isn't going to turn into a real bad situation. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the kind of thing that you do. You never do it with a party of entirely new players. You do it with a group that's got at least a couple of like experienced veteran players who know like how to separate themselves from their characters, know how like that like role playing is left at the table. Like if you're you know, if your character's intimidating or being real mad about something that your character's done and you're doing a skill check against another character, like, that happens at the table. Like, you walk away and you're still friends. Totally. This is, like, this has actually been really useful for me, talking about using skills against, like, within the party. Um, I think we've got to start wrapping up, though. So, uh, Sean. Yeah. Uh, maybe quickly go over one thing, you know, if you could go back in time and tell yourself when you started DMing about using skills hmm. and stuff like that, one piece of advice you'd give yourself. One piece of advice about skills. Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think, I think it's important to think about skills as, as being complex. Like I said, we were talking earlier about, you know, uh, a, a, a good score in a certain skill can mean a lot of different things. And I think understanding that skills are not, you know, like we were talking a lot about history. History is not just book learning. History can be a lot of different things. Athletics can be a lot of different things. You know, intimidation can be a lot of different things. So I think it's important to think of the different ways ahead of time, how skills can be, can be used and try to Try to use skills in different ways. Keep your players guessing um, and uh, try to make your characters use or your, your party use skills they may not often use. Um, but yeah, I think it's just having a, having a good understanding of what each skill can be used for, I think is the biggest thing. Because I think it, there's, there's sort of a default 
okay, athletics is is like a literal how how high can you jump, how fast can you run, that kind of thing. But there's there's more to it than that. There's um, there's there's other ways that you can use certain skills. So I think understanding this the list of skills, understanding how those can be applied in different situations, it just gives you this bigger toolkit to pull from as a DM uh, and allows you to have more interesting and more consequential skill checks. I think, yeah, being open to your players coming up with something you never thought of, of how a skill can be used. Like, if they can narrate or at least explain why they think it's appropriate, go for it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Sean, thanks so much for coming on the show again. Um, You've you've got something to plug. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys had me on a little while ago talking about uh, my uh, my product called Hero Book, uh, which we launched on Kickstarter earlier this year. We were funded, so we're just about to ship those. Very excited Uh, to get mine. Yeah, (laughs) I'm super excited to get them in people's hands. So, uh, if you're not familiar with it, Hero Book is basically a um, it's an accessory for D and D players uh, for fifth edition that is kind of designed to replace all the stuff that you would have at the table when you play. Um, So it's got a usable character sheet. It's a notebook, uh, an A5 notebook. It's got a reusable character sheet in the front, all the rules and references that you need uh, inside to play. So you can leave your player's handbooks and things like that at home um, and just show up with this little book, basically. So that was uh, a couple months ago. We are uh, making our second book now, uh, which is the GM edition, uh, which is highly relevant to us uh, us <laughs> GMs or DMs. Uh, so uh, this is basically the same idea, but tailored for Game Masters. So there'll be a reusable party tracker on the front where you could track initiative, AC, passive perception, that sort of thing. Um, combat trackers to tracking parties initiative. Um, fillable templates for monsters and NPCs. So a whole bunch of tools that you have uh, for DMing. We'll have all the rules of the game inside really quickly indexed uh, so you can find things really really quickly if you need to look up a death saving throw you just go to the index D death saving throw and find it um, and have a whole bunch of tools inside the book as well so tables um, that you can roll on to generate just about anything, NPCs, place names, dungeons, shops. It's kind of designed to replace all the other tools, the all the other uh, informational tools anyway that you might use uh, while DMing. So uh, that is launching on Kickstarter on November the 20th. Yeah, so as this episode come out, comes out, it'll have been up for about six days, I think we said. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure it'll be doing super well like the last book yeah did real well fingers crossed we did really really well we, we uh, hit about 500 percent of our goal which was way more successful than i ever dreamed so if we can come even close to that with the second kickstarter i will be absolutely thrilled yeah. so yeah it's called hero book uh and the new one is called hero book uh, gm edition so yeah. just google that you'll find us and your company's under material components material components yeah our website is materialcomponents.co um, and yeah, we're going all over in the next little while. We were just at Fan Expo a couple weekends ago. Nice. Um, we're going to PAX Unplugged in Philadelphia at the end Fancy. of November. I'm very excited for that. And we're going to PAX South in San Antonio in January as well. Nice. So we're traveling around, uh, meeting people everywhere. It's been really exciting. Yeah. All right, uh, and is there anywhere else people can find you online? Yeah, well, the website is materialcomponents.co. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. we got a Discord channel. Uh, come and uh, say hello and check it out. Sounds good. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. All right. Our wonderful art is done by Haley Boros. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Uh, big thanks to our sponsors, Dice Bard and Libris Arcana. You know, they're and, great. <laughs> and we've got a Patreon. Uh, for just a dollar a month, you get access to episodes a week early. Yeah, and you can find us on social media, on Facebook and Twitter at DMs of Vancouver. You can find me at Jesse the Red and Sean at Sean P. Hagen. I think we changed the order a little bit. I think that's it. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Please rate review on iTunes if you like the show. It helps us out a lot.
Have a good day. Bye. Bye. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.